Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to come. Come and open our eyes that we might see Jesus. Open our ears that we might hear the words of Jesus to us now. And open our hearts that we might encounter the presence of Jesus through your Holy Spirit to make us more like him in our world and to experience him in all of his glory today. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. So in graduate school, I was involved in a research project, a forgiveness research project in the inner city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And the schools that we were working in were, were in neighborhoods that were full of poverty, full of racism, full of violence. Uh, and in these schools, my job as a research assistant was twofold. The first thing was to observe the classroom and see what's going on and record different behaviors that we saw. The second part was to interview the kids and see where they were in certain mental health variables, anger, anxiety, depression, and so on. And I remember being in one of these elementary school classrooms and observing the classroom, and this one little boy, I'll call him Johnny, Johnny was acting out terribly. He kept poking his classmates, he would hit them, he would call names, um, just disrupting things. And now, I know this is not abnormal, that happens in elementary school classrooms everywhere, but what differentiated this from many other classrooms was the frequency and just how often this was disrupting everything. Uh, so after the classroom observations, I interviewed Johnny. He couldn't read yet, so we were asking him questions that would get to his anger levels. Uh, and I remember looking into his eyes, and I remember having to fight back tears. Like so many kids in this classroom, his anger was in a clinical level. That means he could be diagnosed with an anger-related disorder. Through no fault of his own, this child was hurting. He was longing for someone to notice him, to love him, to value him, to protect him. Now, I didn't know Johnny's story, whether his family moved there, relocated there, whether his family had been there for decades. But I do know that whatever his reason for being there was, he shared the same story with many of those kids in that classroom. Uh, the physical, the psychological, the relational impact of living in that kind of environment. This story still breaks my heart. I still see Johnny's face. I still see his big brown eyes looking at me. But we all feel this. We know that our world is broken. And it makes our hearts ache, too. We hear stories like this, and we wonder, how do we make this better? Is there a way out? Some focus on knowledge. If we just educate people and give them the right knowledge, then we'll have peace. Some people focus on our, think, uh, on our, uh, on our behavior. If we just make the right policies and teach people to be nice to one another, then that's what will lead to justice. Others focus on our emotions and right feeling, that if we could just help people like themselves more, then they're not going to hurt other people. Now, clearly, we have nothing against good education, good policymaking, good therapy. Those are all good things, and we celebrate them. But yet, we're still left with this enslaved, isolated, fearful existence. We ache. We ache for wholeness. 
This ache isn't new, though. We didn't come up with this in the 21st century. This kind of ache we actually see when God started to reveal his plan to bring true freedom and justice to the world. The God we meet in the words of the Bible also aches for his creation. But he has a plan to make all things right, to make all things new. So God has this plan to save the world, but the interesting thing and the weird thing is he invites us into the plan as well. So in our scripture passage this morning, we're going to see God on the move. And God, the author of justice, what he's doing to bring true justice to the world. But this plan of God is actually full of surprises. It might not go as we would have drawn it up had we been the ones writing this story. So look with me at three surprising ways that God works among us to restore his broken world. The world of our gospel reading is really a lot like our world today. There's trouble, there's tension, there's fear, there's violence. And like us, they had unjust leaders. In this case, it was Herod the Great, an insecure, paranoid tyrant who would do anything to get rid of people who he perceived as a threat to him. He's not even the real ruler. He's actually more of a puppet king to do whatever the Roman Empire wanted him to do. And he's grasping at this pseudo-power. The religious and political tensions of the time were palpable. Violence was commonplace. And it's in this setting that God's ultimate plan for deliverance is set in motion. So the last three Sundays, as Father Aaron mentioned, we followed this story. And we've seen that this Jesus who was born was born into the family of Abraham, who was supposed to be the salvation, in which was supposed to be the salvation of the world. And this baby was actually God with us, Emmanuel. And then we have these foreigners who come and, and they have a sense of urgency to come and worship and give these lavish, expensive gifts to this baby king. We've got this sense that something really important is actually starting to happen. But then we've also got this little foreshadowing of, whoa, but there might be trouble coming. And you've sensed that along the story. It's like this has been building in a crescendo up to, oh, what is this going to be now here at the end of chapter two? And so that's where we join. And we get the sense even in this passage, in these short 11 verses, we've got three prophetic fulfillments. That means three parts of this Jesus story are actually maybe not necessarily foretold by the prophets, like this is what's going to happen, because they didn't really know. But there are ways that when we look back on it and when the gospel writers look back on it, they saw, oh, wow, this is what was going on all along, and this is why this is kind of making sense. So here's our first surprise. God gets vulnerable. Let's look together either in your Bibles that you perhaps brought or in your bulletin at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, the first section there. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt 
and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So we have this warning of Joseph by an angel that Herod's going to hunt for Jesus to kill him. And then we have Joseph, of course, wanting to protect his family under the cover of night, grab whatever he could and leave. So they barely have anything. And they're leaving at night, traveling along a dangerous route to a foreign country where they know no one. And all of a sudden, before Jesus can walk and talk, He's a homeless refugee with a price on his head. He's too young to act. Everything is acted on him. He's a refugee child, a fugitive, almost a a most wanted person, if you will. How crazy is that? That the world's deliverer comes in human vulnerability. The way that God would set his people free and bring justice to the world was not to arrive in comfort when everyone else was in suffering and misery. This child would not have it easy when everyone else was having it hard. Emmanuel was right here where the pain is. I taught psychology for nine years at a Christian university, and... I remember talking with a student one time who was really disenchanted with Christian faith. That happens a lot in Christian universities. Because she pictured God up there in heaven somewhere, all cozy and warm and having everything he needed, yet humans are down here in the muck, in the misery, in the difficulties in life. After listening to her picture of God, I I listened with empathy, and I gently challenged her, wondering out loud if this maybe has more to do with her picture of leaders around the world today, leaders who insulate themselves from the difficulties of other people. Because what we see here and in other places in the gospel narrative is that God enters human suffering. He doesn't push it away. He comes into it. And you might have noticed that our New Testament reading this morning in Hebrew 2 also drove at this truth that Jesus was made like us in every respect. He entered into our suffering, that through his death he might destroy death and deliver those who are subject to lifelong slavery. So this is good news for people like us who live in a strange place, who aren't at home, who face violence, who face trouble, who face uncertainty. Now, for some, identifying with Jesus as a refugee is a literal identification. There are millions of immigrants and refugees in the world who are far away from everything that they have known and loved, and they are living this reality. For others, this identification is a little more figurative, but it's no less real. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, likens Christians to sojourners and exiles, that this is not our home. This made me think of our oldest son, Drew, who was uh, born when I was in grad school in Wisconsin, in Madison. So he was born there. We lived there for two and a half years, and then we moved kind of halfway across the country to Virginia when he was two and a half uh, for my first teaching job. 
And so growing up, the only place that he really knew as home was Virginia. And when people would ask him, where, where are you from? Where do you live? He'd say, well, we, here's where we live. But I'm really from Wisconsin. That's my home. Now, his extended family was there. His favorite restaurants were there. His favorite sports teams were there. His favorite weather, which was really important to him, like cold and snow, that was there. In short, his heart was there. And so he was kind of like a sojourner in a temporary place, not really at home. Now, whether we're literal or figurative sojourners, all of us at times feel the ways that we don't fit. And we miss, like we miss our language. We miss our people. We miss the things that bring us comfort because we're, we're outside of where we belong and where we fit. This is especially true of literal refugees in the world. But it's also true for anyone who carries that sojourner feeling. Now, there's something even deeper here that Matthew wants us to see. Jesus, Emmanuel, enters our humanity, and this is that key part of the, that first paragraph, as part of God's design to fulfill God's word through the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son was the phrase. That doesn't mean much to us, but to the listeners of this gospel, it meant a ton because they went back, as our Old Testament reading today was Hosea 11, the son was Israel. And out of Egypt was the Exodus. Remember the motion picture, the animation, of Moses and delivering God's people? So God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, but you might have seen in your reading, the reading from Hosea that we read this morning, that actually even after they were delivered, they were unfaithful. And they were unfaithful a lot. And that's kind of the picture that we have in the Old Testament of God's people. Now, early in the Bible, Israel was supposed to be the family that represented God to everyone. So if we wondered what God was like and what it was like to live for and with this God, we were supposed to be able to look at Israel for that example. But Israel failed in that. She failed in her call to reflect God in that way. Notice, though, that Hosea offered hope of God's compassion and faithfulness. And this hope was fulfilled in Jesus, so that where Israel was unfaithful, Jesus assumed that story, and he was faithful in her stead. So Jesus' return from Egypt meant the ultimate deliverance of God's people from their state of slavery. Not just a temporary one, but the ultimate one. It's a new exodus. It's the true and better exodus, the definitive exodus, the one that will count for everyone. This time, that deliverance that humans are longing for is going to stick. So we can and we should be excited about Jesus entering our pain to bring healing. That's a good thing. But I also want to point out a responsibility that comes with that. And that responsibility is that just as Jesus entered our frailty to bring deliverance, we are called into that same mission. That as the people of God, the embodiment of Jesus on this earth, there are strangers and foreigners all around us. Some of them literal, some of them figurative, but we need to open our eyes so that just as Jesus identified with us and brought us deliverance, we can identify with the stranger, with the sojourner, with the refugee, the immigrant, and be an agent of hope and healing, the tangible presence of Jesus, as it were, to them. 
So we experience the life of God in Jesus, and then others experience the life of Jesus through us, his embodiment here on earth. So Jesus came to us. He assumed our humanity. He entered into our frailty. If you notice this phrase that happens, I think, three times in the passage, when, when Matthew is referring to Jesus and Mary, he doesn't use their names. He says, the child and his mother. That just emphasizes again to us that humanity, the real humanity of Jesus. He does that to bring us into the life of God. I like how Tim Keller puts this. There's no way to have a real relationship without becoming vulnerable to hurt. Christmas tells us that God became breakable and fragile. God became someone we could hurt. Why? To get us back. No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism, or Islam, believes that God became breakable or suffered or had a body. So think of that. The God of the universe became vulnerable for us. He didn't come in a power to crush us. He came in a humble power to identify and be vulnerable with us. But there's another surprise in how God restores our broken world. God enters our lament. He doesn't just stand aloof. He laments with us. He joins the the places of heartbreak, the places of pain, the places of tears. Let's look at verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod, in a typical fit of jealousy and paranoia, orders the slaughter of innocent children. And here's the second prophetic fulfillment that we have in our passage. This story kind of mirrors that story in Exodus when Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of the kids in trying to kill Moses. And it also stands alongside the defeat and the exile of Judah to Babylon in Jeremiah's time. That was the immediate context in Jeremiah's prophecy here. So Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is reminded of Jeremiah 31, 15, with Rachel weeping for exiled Israel. The country had been, the people of the country had been taken away. And he remembers that the story of Israel is in many ways not a story of victory, but a story of lament. We see the depth of pain and the horror of loss, whether it be the loss of a nation, the loss of a people, or the loss of innocent children. But there's more here. Usually when the gospel writers refer to a specific verse of prophecy in the Old Testament, they want the reader to recall the larger context or the larger story that that verse is taken from. In the context of Jeremiah 31, in addition to the weeping, also talks about hope. And God makes some bold promises here. He will renew the covenant and he will bring back Israel from exile. Violence and exile won't have the final word in this big story. God's love is going to prevail and he will restore. Rachel's children will return. And although there's weeping now, rescue 
is on the way. So Jesus is bringing deliverance even when everything looks bleak and hopeless. Rather than pretending that just injustice doesn't exist, it's lamented. It's in the depth of pain, actually, that the deliverance of the Lord is promised. We can hold both of these together. There's no need for us to pretend that, oh, everything is fine right now. Praise the Lord, brother. We acknowledge the pain of loss, the loss of dreams, the loss of loved ones, the loss of identity or jobs or hope or innocence. We long for restoration, and Jesus brings hope for the hurting, not by patting us on the back, but by becoming one of the hurting. So we can sit with others, we can lament with them, and we can wait in hope. This deliverance is sure, and it will be a glorious deliverance, even now in the midst of pain. This is a paradox, but it's a paradox that we need to hold as followers of Jesus. What does lament look like? I think of a couple friend of ours a while back who experienced miscarriage. We didn't tell them that God works everything together for good. We didn't tell jokes to make them feel better. We didn't try to minimize their pain by comparing their story to someone who had it much worse than they did. We sat with them. We listened. We cried with them. We brought meals to them. We gave them space, but then we checked in often. And we agreed with them and God that this is not how things are supposed to be. This is the gift of Advent, isn't it? We lean into our ache, acknowledging the brokenness and the darkness that make us desperate, desperate for God to come in and restore everything. So Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, finds a sign of this, the meaning of the tragedy in Bethlehem. It's not a sign that solves everything, but it's a sign instead that sympathizes. Matthew's Jeremiah sign sympathizes with this tragedy, not by saying in a cheap way, oh, it's not so bad, but by saying, Rachel too weeps. God gets vulnerable. That's the first surprise. God enters our lament. That's the second surprise. But there's one more surprise in how God restores our broken world. God goes ordinary. Let's look together at verses 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go, there's that phrase again, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
So finally, after some time, we don't know exactly how long, maybe a couple of years, Herod dies, and Joseph gets another angel visit uh, where he said, he's told, it's okay to go back. Imagine the excitement and being able to go back to your homeland. Like, oh, finally, I've been waiting for this. But then when he gets back, oh, more bad news. This guy's son is ruling in his place, and he's not really any better than his dad. And so instead of going to Bethlehem or Jerusalem, which would have been the, hey, we have the baby king, let's go to the kingly place. Where do they end up? Nazareth. It's like going to Valley City, Illinois, which none of you probably have ever heard of, and that's exactly the point. I looked it up yesterday, and it's actually the smallest village in Illinois. It has 12 people. And so what we are talking about with Nazareth is a place of obscurity. It's nowhere. He's going to nowhere. We have the king not going to the kingly place, but going to the ordinary nobodies in the middle of nowhere. Now, somehow this fulfills prophecy, and we're not exactly sure which prophecy, but according to the prophets, it's more of a general idea. Uh, what scholars think is the best, uh, the best possibility is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, when it talks about a branch growing out of the stump, and this branch has the same Hebrew consonants as Nazareth. So there's a little bit of a, yeah, this is maybe the best we can do. But the, the main idea is it emphasizes humility. So the Messiah is from nowhere. That's his hometown. He's sent to rescue nobodies. So this is good news for the ordinaries and those of low standing. How many of us feel like we have really no history of prominence or pedigree? We're just ordinary folk. And sometimes I think without realizing it, we think that God's presence and power goes to the people who are smarter, who are richer, who are more powerful than we are, who are better looking than we are. But all we have to do is look at Jesus' parents to see that that's not true. They're not the most powerful or wealthy or talented people. They were ordinary people like us. What makes them extraordinary was their yes to God and saying yes to what he's asking them to do. So Jesus came to take a low place with us and for us. That's good news for us, but again, let's remember that as we relate to others, this humble story of our Jesus coming to us in this way actually declares the great value, especially of the least among us. And may we go and be the presence of Christ to them as well. So we've seen that God has a plan to set his people free and bring justice to the world. And this plan is for Jesus to enter our humanity completely, not just partly, but completely, in a time of deep uh, pain and mourning, Jesus comes to bring us up into the life of God. It'll be completed eventually one day when Jesus comes back to restore all things. And we've also seen that this plan is surprising, and it's surprising in three ways. God gets vulnerable, God enters our lament, and God goes ordinary. So because of the Father's love for us, Jesus came in humility and frailty as a refugee. He came in a time of deep pain and mourning. He came in obscurity. He came from nowhere. And he came to take the very nature of humans. But yet, as God, 
This is what J.I. Packer calls the supreme mystery of the gospel, the incarnation. When we are unfaithful, he is faithful. He inhabits our brokenness, and he takes that and he brings it up into the very life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He breaks the power of brokenness, the power of sin, the power of death that holds us in bondage. And this restoration is accomplished through the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, which we get to take on through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. Now, for some of us, these facts seem contrary, or the facts of our lives seem contrary to what we're talking about today. And I hope that this text is an encouragement to us who wonder about our troubles and the troubles of the world. And as we close, I wanted to talk to two groups in particular. You may or may not fit in one of these, but for many, this coming week, Christmas week, is the be- one of the best times of the year. But for some of you, this is the time of year when you go into situations that make you feel the sting of loneliness, the sting of pain, of rejection, of obscurity, of frailty, all these things we've been talking about. Maybe this is the first Christmas without grandma or grandpa. Maybe it's the first Christmas after the divorce or the miscarriage or the breakup. Maybe it reminds you of the job you lost or the innocence that was taken from you or the future that you've now given up on. Know that we ache and lament with you. But even more than that, know that God aches and laments with you. This isn't how things are supposed to be. Yet we ache in hope, knowing that Jesus is present with you right in the middle of the muck. May you experience the peace of Jesus' presence. And as I was praying for this time that we had together this morning, I had a sense in the Lord for others. There was once a promise that you had from the Lord, an experience of God, something that really generated a lot of excitement and energy in your life, and you were excited about Jesus and his work, but then circumstances changed in your life, and it just kind of quenched that. It put out that flame. And the focus turned to yourself and onto your situation. And now you're sitting in apathy. Yeah. You're sitting with doubt. And if you really think about it, you're sitting with a sense of numbness. You're like, I don't even feel anything. Here's the encouragement. Look up. Look to Jesus. Turn your eyes to him. Because he's in that with you. Not in a trite way that makes it seem like nothing's bad, but he knows what it's like. He's been there. And in the darkness, God is actually working something deep and profound in your heart. And so this is the hope. Don't turn away from the light. Turn toward the light. And don't just be a passive recipient anymore. You've done the passive thing and you've let it happen, but now is the time actually to put a stake in the ground and stand up and as James 4, 7 says, resist the evil one and he will flee. So it's true that the fullness of this deliverance is still to come, but we actually get a foretaste of that deliverance now. And we enter into this deliverance as we participate in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in baptism. And in a few minutes, in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our frailty and obscurity, 
we actually get to encounter Jesus at his table. Here, through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, we come with open and empty hands. We really have nothing. But we're ready to receive the presence of Jesus and his strength, and his hope, and his deliverance for us. And we don't do it alone. We get to do this together as God's people. And I'll leave you with this encouragement too. If the Lord is stirring something in your heart, I want you to encourage to visit a prayer partner during communion. That that person can come alongside you and pray with you and minister the presence of Jesus to you in that tangible way. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.